Glad you're here. It is a great week with Bible school coming up. Uh, uh, this morning, have had the chance just to dive back into God's Word. And we're going to uh, talk about the, this theme we've been in the midst of, and that is transformed by the gospel uh, and what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel. And we're using John chapter 15 as kind of our, our central uh, scripture in this as we've been looking about what it, what it may look like for us to be transformed by the gospel. And I thought it might be helpful since we uh, kind of had a Memorial Day weekend and and then a graduate recognition weekend last uh, weekend to just uh, maybe take just a few moments before we dive in and, and just do a, do a quick uh, a review uh, if we could. And so let me just kind of remind you of maybe where we have been and give some context of what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, one of the, the kind of the key themes of this whole series has been the, the gospel is not just how we begin in Christ but it's how we grow in Christ. And when we talk about the gospel, we talk about that, that, that core message uh, that Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he came and lived the life that you and I were called to live and created to live but didn't live, died the death that we deserved to die because of our rebellion and our sin. He was uh, crucified. He was dead. He was buried. He's uh, been resurrected. Uh, he's ascended to the Father's coming back again someday. And our response to that makes all the difference, not just uh, now, uh, but for all eternity. But we never uh, just start with the gospel, but it's how we continue to grow in the gospel. Said another way, the way that you grow in Christ is never growing beyond the gospel, but growing deeper in the gospel. And you may remember I introduced you to a diagram that hopefully will help illustrate this. Sometimes pictures are better than, than words, but to come to a point maybe somewhere in the, in the timeline of our life, come to a point where we recognize our need for a Savior, uh, that we need God to do for us in Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. And we come and we turn from trusting in ourselves and self-directing our life to trusting in the finished work of Christ and inviting Him to be the boss the Lord, the leader, the director of our life. But that's not the end, that's just the beginning. And as we continue to grow in Christ, we have a growing awareness of God's holiness. And whenever we discover more and more of the wholeness, the holiness of God, it also simultaneously gives us a growing awareness of our own sinfulness. It's not that we become more sinful, hopefully we're growing, uh, but we become aware. There's some things that disturb us, that challenge us, that uh, God confronts us with. Maybe it didn't bother us a year ago or five years ago, but it does now. And this growing awareness of God's holiness and sinfulness makes that growing awareness of our need for uh, a Savior. And so what happens with the passing of time that we actually, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our lives, that we have a, an increasing awe of, uh, a respect for, a gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we never grow beyond it, but we grow deeper in it. And we've talked consistently through this series that the same grace that's forgiven me is now in the process of changing me. That I didn't just need grace at the beginning, but now I need grace every moment of every day. And that same grace that changed me in the beginning is still in the process of changing me. And then I talked to you about the, the, the difference between uh, mechanical growth and organic growth. And I had some fruit up here if you were here that Sunday. 
and talked about sometimes we try to kind of mechanically grow, and it's almost like taking a piece of fruit and putting a hook through it or tying a little string on it and hanging it on a tree like a Christmas ornament, right? It's mechanical growth. So we say, well, I'm supposed to be kinder, or I'm supposed to be uh, more this, or I'm not supposed to do this. And so I, I kind of through self-effort try to hang these things on the, on the tree of my life. But what God is looking for is organic growth, a growth that comes from within. And so as we abide that that theme over and over in John 15 as we abide in him that there is this growth that happens from the inside out it is this organic growth in our life and then a couple weeks ago we talked about that if the gospel is transforming us internally it will also be propelling us externally that this transformation is not just an internal thing but it also pushes us out toward other people and shared with you that the, the diagram that it's all certainly centered upon God's grace, but there's an inward movement of a heart and an outward movement of love toward God and others. And so as we continue in this kind of never-ending cycle, we see more and more of our sin. We uh, repent and exercise faith. We experience joy. Helps us to see opportunities to love and minister, dying to self increasingly, stepping out in faith and joy. And this joy just kind of fuels this this never-ending cycle fueled by God's grace. It changes us internally, but also propels us externally. And that brings us to what I kind of want us to focus on this morning out of uh, John 15, Uh, and that is just this whole uh, relationship uh, with other people under this heading of uh, a new commandment. And maybe to get us started in that, let me just show you a a picture of a a tomatillo plant. Anybody grow tomatillos in their... Now, nah, we don't tend to grow many of those around here. In fact, he's thinking, what, what do we use them for, right? Well, a lot of times they're used in Mexican dishes. So if you go to a Mexican restaurant, you, sometimes you'll see the, the green salsa verde. Uh, that, that comes from the, the, the tomatillo plant. It's used in, in some other dishes as well, but the salsa verde would be probably the one we would be most familiar with along the way. But I bring that up not to give you a lesson in Mexican cooking, uh, because I, I'm not qualified to do that, uh, but to, to give you one important uh, fact about the tomatillo, and that is you can't just plant one of those. If you plant one tomatillo, it will not grow because it has to have at least two or more because it has to cross-pollinate. And what, why I bring that up is I, I think that's how God designed us, that we don't grow alone, that we need to cross-pollinate. In fact, is God designed it in such a way that we are to be dependent upon him and interdependent with one another. And as much as he talks about abiding in him in John 15, he also talks about our relationships with one another, relationships that are be, supposed to be marked by a radical Christ-centered type of love. In John chapter 15, verse 12, he gives us these words, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you back up to chapter 13 in John chapter 13 to 17, or sometimes called the upper room discourse, this is in the upper room, Jesus is kind of pouring these last words into the disciples before the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, before uh, the crucifixion takes place. Uh, Toward the end of chapter 13, he echoes that same theme. 
verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the, the, the calling to, to love doesn't strike us as perhaps radically new, and yet it forces us to ask a question if we take Jesus' word seriously. He says, a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. And that begs the question, well, how is this a new commandment? I mean, the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament was, was filled with, with commands to love. It's not like Jesus was the first one that ever said this or ever thought about this, right? Uh, one of the examples, uh, right after one of the, out of the first few books of the Bible, right? Leviticus 19, you not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We talk about the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those came directly from the Jewish scriptures. It's not new as if somebody had, nobody had ever taught this before. God had, had been teaching this to his people throughout the centuries. So in what sense is this a new commandment? I would suggest to you it's a new commandment in two ways. The first is it's a new pattern. It's a new pattern. That we are to live out the love of Jesus. What makes this new is you are to love, not just love your neighbor as yourself, but you are to love as Jesus has loved us. And that becomes a much higher standard, that he's calling us to a new standard, a new pattern of loving, that even as he has demonstrated the way to love, you are to love one another. You are to love others the way that Jesus love. So it's a new commandment because it's a new pattern, but we also, I think, have a new power that we can live on the love of Jesus. We don't just live it out toward other people, but we live on it. We live in love because we are loved. We have a greater capacity to love because we have been accepted. We have been enveloped in the family of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so there's this new pattern and there's this new power, this new capacity to love. But the standard is much higher now in this new commandment. To love as I have loved you. Which then causes us to ask, well, how did Jesus love, right? I mean, how did Jesus love? And obviously, that's a, a huge question. A few months ago, we, we went through the first part of 1 Corinthians 13 under that whole heading, loving like Jesus loved, because that's, for us, one of the marks of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is they love like Jesus loved. And we took all those characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13 that many folks call the love chapter, and we looked about how those were lived out in the life of Jesus. And what I want to do is not try to repeat all of those, because there's no way we could do that in the time, but I want to just, for this morning purposes, give you four thoughts, four observations on the way that Jesus loved. And the first and the most foundational is that Jesus came, right? I mean, Jesus 
came. John starts off his gospel uh, telling us about uh, the Word uh, and the Word who was, was God and then this Word who becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first thing that Jesus did in loving, He came. He gave up the glories of heaven and He took on human flesh. He entered into a sin-scarred, sin-marred world. He entered into our brokenness. He entered into our pain. Jesus came. And as with each of these observations, I want to leave us with a question. And the question is simply this, how? How can I begin to move toward people? Because love moves toward people. In, in my self-centeredness, I move away. I move away from pain. I move away from uncomfortable. I move away from broken. I keep my distance from those things. But Jesus came. He entered into the mess. He entered into the brokenness. Love shows up. Love moves toward people. How can I begin to move toward people, even messy situations, even broken people? How can I begin to move toward people? Jesus came. And not only did Jesus come, uh, but secondly, we find that Jesus set aside his rights in order to serve. That Jesus made this decision out of a position of strength, out of a position of love, to set aside his rights in order to serve. So when Jesus is talking in John 13 and John 15 about loving, what did he do right before that? Chapter 13 of John's gospel opens up in the upper room, and what's Jesus doing? You know, many of you know. He's taking a towel. He's taking the basin, and he's stooping to wash feet. If anybody in that room had the right for everybody else in that room to serve them, it was Jesus. But Jesus was the one who took off the outer garment, put on the towel, and wash the dirty feet. Because that was the pattern of his life. Paul wrote about it this way to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, because that's what I do in the flesh. I just look out for my own interest. But also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, not to hold on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This one who came, this one who moved toward us, then said, I am going to set aside my rights. I'm going to set aside my rights in order to serve by taking the form of a servant. And so it causes me to ask, if I'm going to love like Jesus loved, what might it look like for me to set aside my rights 
and proactively look for ways to serve others. Not like be forced to, okay, there's no other way, but to proactively say, what is it going to look like? What does it look like in our home? What does it look like in my relationships? What does it look like in our church? What does it look like as I interact with other people? To set aside my rights and proactively look for ways to serve others. Jesus came. He moved toward people and not away from people. Jesus set aside his rights in order to take up the form of a servant. Thirdly, I would suggest to you that Jesus operated with compassion. That he operated with a high level of compassion. The beginning of Mark's gospel is very fast-moving gospel that Mark put together where you find this encounter with a man in Jesus. Then a man with a serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him, he's coming before Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's Jesus' response, moved with compassion. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him. I am willing. Be made clean. And immediately, the disease left him and he was healed. And when we think about compassion, sometimes we think about feelings. What I, do I feel compassion? And, and that's great. Uh, but compassion is not just a, a feeling. But compassion is how I act, how I react, how I respond to people and circumstances and situations. And what I want us to learn from Jesus in this uh, short uh, little encounter in Mark's gospel is, is a little bit of what compassion might look like. And see, three things that Jesus did. First of all, Jesus reached out. He reached out. Now, think about that. That's extraordinary. Here's a man that almost everybody else would avoid because of his skin condition. To get near him was to risk being ceremonially unclean. To get near him was to even risk being uh, called, catching that disease yourself. And so everybody else keeps their distance. Everybody else moves around. But Jesus reaches out. Jesus reaches out. What might it look like for you and I to stretch beyond our comfort zone to reach out to another? Because the, the natural thing, because I'm busy and uh, I'm tired and I've already got too much on my plate and, and I don't know how to deal with that anyway, it's not to reach out, it's to step around, isn't it? to kind of go on the other side of the road, kind of like the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan and those that gave wide berth and went on. What might it look like? Because it'll be uncomfortable at times to stretch beyond my comfort zone, a little bit into that discomfort zone, to reach out to another. But Jesus not only reached out, but Jesus touched. He touched. He physically touched this person who, who knows how long it had been since he had last been touched by another human being. Very often, people with these types of diseases, were, they, they weren't allowed to live near other people. They were distanced from other people. 
Jesus breaks that barrier. Jesus touched. What might it look like for you and I to touch someone else's life? It might look like a listening ear. In a world in which we're all so busy, in a world where everybody seems to have a comment and an opinion about everything, it is almost a lost art to really listen, isn't it? To have somebody to take the time to actually set down their phone, turn off the notifications, not look at the 3,000 TVs in the restaurant, <laughs> and really listen, to listen. Maybe touching someone looks like meeting a practical need in their life. Maybe it's a physical need, maybe it's financial, maybe it's just a, an emotional need, or whatever it might be. But just, is there some way I could touch them by meeting a, a very real need in their life? And sometimes it looks like an appropriate physical touch. You know, we're, we're connected on social media, but there are a lot of people in the world that are just starved for a hug, for just an appropriate physical touch. And it's, I know it, it's just a weird world, right? I mean, it's kind of even... Those of you who work on children's halls and preschool halls with us, you know, you've got protections and you try to take all these safeguards and stuff. And those are wise and appropriate. But, man, sometimes somebody just needs somebody to touch, to hug, to put a hand on a shoulder. There's something powerful about having somebody pray for you and actually put a hand on your shoulder at the same time. He reached out and he touched. But there's a third thing that Jesus did here, and that is he spoke. He spoke. He, he verbalized something out loud to this man. And it makes me wonder, what would it look like for you and I to be the voice of Jesus to speak God's love and God's truth into the life of another. And maybe it's a, it's a word of encouragement. Uh, may, maybe it's a word of confrontation. Maybe it's a word of, of direction along the way. Maybe it's just some word of, of support or whatever it might be, but, but that we need words spoken into our lives. You know, somebody lied to us when they told us on the playground that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. They hurt. They hurt. But they also have a huge capacity to heal and to build up as well as tear down. Love sometimes looks like speaking God's love and God's truth into the life of another. So Jesus came. He set aside his rights to serve. He, he moved toward other human beings with compassion as he reached out and he touched and he spoke along the way. But I want you to see one other thing that we'll just observe this morning about the love of Jesus. And that is that Jesus bridged the gap. 
Jesus bridged the gap between God and man. So when we go back to the the model in in John 15, as he's saying, the love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And I don't know if they fully understood it in those moments, but they would in the next few hours because they were just hours away from Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were less than 24 hours away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They had to have these words just reverberating in their hearts and in their minds as they thought about what it means to love like Jesus loved. He laid down his life for them. And it's the message that's been transforming lives and transforming people throughout the centuries. So that Paul, whose life was radically reoriented and changed uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, would write to the Romans, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still living in rebellion, while we were choosing our way, he intervened, he stepped in, he died for us, and his death provided for us what no one else could. He became the one and only mediator. Paul would write to Timothy, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, you and I can't give our lives uniquely like Jesus did. He is the one mediator between God and men. But we can help point people there. So love looks like helping to breach the gap between God and men. By pointing people to the perfect provision of Jesus Christ. That's my calling. That's your calling. If we're followers of Christ Jesus, that that, that we, we are those signposts. We are ambassadors. We point people to his provision. We help bridge the gap by pointing them to the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And love looks like pointing people to the provision of Jesus Christ. And so as you think about loving and the relationships of your life, begin to ask, how can I help bridge that gap? By pointing people to the perfect provision of Jesus Christ. You may be saying, okay, I kind of get it. And came and set aside his rights and he served and he moved with compassion and and bridge the gap. But where do I start? Where do I start loving like Jesus loved? Fulfilling this calling, this new commandment. Well, I'm going to suggest to you two rules to love by, and they're going to be kind of so simple and fundamental, and yet if we actually live them out, they are powerful, aren't they? And you're familiar with them. The first is the golden rule, right? The golden rule. 
Matthew's gospel, Jesus spoke it this way. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? And we, we probably, some of us have been taught that or are trying to teach that from a very, very, very young age, right? So I have a, have a four-year-old grandson and his little brother's about to turn one. And they have some interesting interactions now, particularly as the one-year-old gets more mobile and can grab his toys and other things, right? And so, so you know, we could just like lay down the law, right? Don't do that. Don't take that. Don't. But to go beyond that, so we've even, as a four-year-old, started talking about the golden rule. Do you want somebody to treat you that way? No. <laughs> well, don't treat somebody else that way. How do you want to be treated? That's the way you treat others. It just think about it, if we didn't get further than this rule, it would be pretty transformational in our culture, wouldn't it? I mean, Twitter would not have anything to tweet, I don't think, right? I mean, you know, what do we do with that, right? Tweet about others the way you want them to tweet about you. That would, like, <laughs> reduce the, the volume quickly, wouldn't it? Right? Somebody talks about business ethics. I don't know if there's business ethics, there's just ethics. Do unto others. She would have them to do unto you. Treat them the way you want somebody to treat your mom. <laughs> right? I, 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 that's a great place to start, isn't it? But Jesus takes us even one step further. Some have called this the, the platinum rule, right? A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So that I begin to think not just how do I want somebody else to treat me or, or love me or relate to me, but I begin to say, what, what, would, what would Jesus' love look like in this situation? And that, that takes it to that whole new level, that whole another pattern of loving along the way. Now, at this moment, some of you are perhaps getting a little bit uneasy, and I understand that. Honestly, I get uneasy when I talk about this because in our culture, sometimes we, we talk about love in such kind of nebulous terms. It's kind of like, well, as long as I stick the label love on it, everything goes then, right? It's love. We have to understand God knew, God knew that we might need a little help with figuring out how to love in the best possible way. And so you go throughout the New Testament and you find all of these commands. Let me jump back there. All of these commands that help us to apply Jesus' new command. All of the don't do this, all of the do these things, help us to understand how to love. So let me put it in those forms of two questions. 
When I think about, well, what do I do in those situations where, where there's not a clear do this or don't do this, then I can just begin to ask myself, what does God's love for me require of me? What does God's love for me require of me? Or the shortened version of that, what does love require? Sometimes the answer is very clear because he spelled it out in the commands of Scripture. And we're going to take a little deeper dive on commands next week. But sometimes there's not like a clear command for every situation we'll encounter, right? And in those moments, we can begin to live out the golden rule, the platinum rule, by asking, what does God's love for me require of me? What does love require? Now, I want to bring you back to this very important reminder we've been trying to hammer again and again and again through this series, and that is simply this. We obey God's commandments not to be loved, but because we already are loved in Christ. We, we, we don't do it so that we will earn God's love. We do it because we have already received God's love, His unmerited favor, His grace toward us in Jesus Christ. John would write a letter and say, we love because He first loved us. Why do I respond to God in love because He first loved me? Why do I act in love toward other people because He first loved me? When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote about imitating God, about walking in love, but notice he writes out of our identity. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Where do you think he learned that? From Jesus. Right? From Jesus. Why do you imitate God? Why do you walk in love? Because you are already beloved children if you are in Jesus Christ. What does love require of me? Maybe a story will help drive it home. The early followers of Jesus Christ in that first century, they were trying to figure out, maybe like you and I, what does it look like to follow Jesus Christ in a world that is very hostile to the message of Jesus Christ? Well, what does it look like to, to love Jesus Christ? They were in a world where you can actually get killed for following Jesus Christ. What does it look like to live out this new commandment in a world like that? Well, here's one example. In the first century, Christians developed a reputation for taking in and caring for abandoned babies. Infanticide was not only legal in the Roman Empire, in certain circumstances, it was considered an obligation. One case in point. Emperor Claudius famously forced his wife to abandon a baby daughter She's con she conceived with a free slave. Exposure, as it was sometimes referred to, was not considered murder since technically the child had some chance of survival. 
If the fate chose for the child to survive, so be it. The fates decided. The parents were guiltless. It was a common practice in that day for mothers to abandon their newborns on the banks of a river, at the edge of a forest, or outside of the walls that protected a village. And they would leave their babies to freeze or to starve or to be eaten by the wild animals. Babies were abandoned for a wide variety of reasons, including birth defects, suspicions of infidelity, economics, or as is in the case still across the world today, based on gender. A letter dating back from sometime in the first century illustrates kind of the detached indifference that many in the Roman Empire had at that time. Don't know who wrote it, it's someone that was away on business or perhaps a soldier away. He's writing to his wife. I am still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. As soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, good fortune to you. If you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Hear that language. It's not let's talk about it when I get home. Let's decide what's the best thing to do. If it's a girl, not her, it. Expose it. That was the culture of the day. Christians rejected and condemned infanticide from the beginning. The Didache, a first century Christian handbook of sorts, states, you shall not kill that which is born. And this sentiment was echoed by church fathers and apologists in the the years that followed. But the early Christians took it even a step further. They visited the sites where children were frequently abandoned, where they were left exposed, and they took these children home to raise as their own. Now, pause. Why? Why do you do that? There's no commandment anywhere in the New Testament that says, go take babies that are left exposed into your home. Why do that? It's not in the New Testament. It's not even found in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Why would you do that? Because that's what love requires. That's what love required. Food was scarce and it was expensive. Homes were small and babies died all the time. And there were lots and lots of reasons not to do it. But there was one compelling reason to do it. Because that's what love required. Long before there were any of the movements that we have today, sacrificial love entered in. And it eventually changed even the Roman Empire. 
In the year 8318, Emperor Constantine declared infanticide a crime. In AD 374, under Emperor Valentin, exposure became a capital offense. This pitiless pagan ritual that had been practiced by pagan parents for hundreds of years in multiple cultures was eventually found and considered to be criminal through the influence of ordinary men and women who were followers of Jesus Christ who decided to do what love required. That's the power of the new commandment. And so I ask you to dream with me for a moment. What would it look like? What would it look like in our homes if we started asking, not what little do I have to do, what are my rights here? But I started asking, what does love require? What would it look like in the church of Jesus Christ if we spent less time focused on our preferences and more time asking, what does love require? What does God's love for me require of me toward other people? What would happen in our culture if we spent maybe less time whining and complaining about this or that or the other and just began to move in all of our spheres of influence and ask the question, what does love require? Could it be that Jesus knew how to change the world all along? And so he said to his followers, moments before his arrest would lead to his crucifixion. A new commandment I give to you. To love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This week, what would it look like if we made an effort by his empowering grace to ask the question in every situation with every person, what does love? require of me. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, thank you for your love. It blows us away to think about the fact that you came to rebels and invited them to be children, invited them to be yours forever. And Father, when we really begin to wrestle with that much love, the love that's not just a squishy feeling, but as enters into the messiness and the brokenness of life, we're blown away 
we're humbled. And in Christ Jesus, we're loved. And so, Father, as we say thank you for your love toward us, we ask you to teach us how to live a new commandment, how to love the way that Jesus loved us. And Father, in the relationships of our life, even those hard ones, even those messy ones, even those broken ones, would you help us this week to ask and to act in accordance with what love would require of me? And as you just sit before the Lord for a moment more,